Hey internet, I'm Simon Squibb, your host at the Good Luck Club podcast. Our mission is to help anybody out there that's thinking of starting a business. Equally, if you've started a business and are struggling, maybe you need a little bit of inspiration and knowledge. And we hope by interviewing some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs and change makers that you'll get the knowledge you need to become the person you want and turn your business into that dream company. I personally have started 17 companies from scratch and have invested in over 65 startups. When I sat down and analyzed how I did it, I discovered a secret. It was all luck. I'm here to tell you, in my opinion, without luck, it ain't gonna work. Each week, I will discuss with my guests this theory and see if luck is a skill as I feel it is. I hope you enjoy our episode this week. My guest today is Sasha Celestial One. She was born into an entrepreneur family and grew up learning how to hustle but didn't want to be initially an entrepreneur and went into the corporate world, working for Morgan Stanley and the likes of American Express. And then seven years ago, something changed. Sasha became the co-founder and COO of a for-profit purpose-driven business called Olio, a free app harnessing the power of mobile technology and the sharing economy to provide a revolutionary solution to the problem of food waste which, to my surprise, is the third largest contributor to the climate crisis. Olio is empowered by over 50,000 volunteers and has over 2 million users who have shared over 4.2 million portions of food in 49 countries. And first of all, Sasha, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Simon. Nice to meet you. Likewise. Well, I always like to start the podcast off with this one simple question, which is, what does success mean to you? You know, I have uh, thought about that for um, since you sent the email with that question, and it is a very good question. Question. It's not super easy to to answer, and I think it's because there isn't. I don't really have one particular definition of success that's quantifiable, or maybe you know um, something that you can necessarily measure. For me, it's more. Um, more of a feeling and when I was thinking about how to articulate that feeling I think it's the feeling of waking up every day and feeling that what you've got planned for the day is exactly what it is that you want to be doing as opposed to wishing or longing that you were doing something else you know living in that state of always wishing you're longing to be doing something other than what it is that you actually need to do that day is not a very pleasant place to live. And I spent a long time sort of aspiring when I was younger, always thinking there was something better around the, around, around the corner. Um, and, and success is definitely being content and inspired by what it is that's already on your to-do list for today. Of course, as well, not having to deal or to worry about financial insecurity, you know, that's not fun. Um, for anyone. So I think there's a minimum level of financial security, which is, you know, I can pay the bills and buy my kids clothes and, you know, go on a holiday every now and then um, is, is, is a part of that as well. Looking at your CV, you, you started your career in Morgan Stanley. Is that, is that right? I did. Yes. Yeah, so I moved to New York in 1998. Eight <laughs> sounds like a long time ago, um, and I spent four years at Morgan Stanley. Um, my favorite part was working on the trading floor, um, understanding how the equity markets worked, and also um, you know right in the middle of that four years that I spent at Morgan Stanley, the markets crashed. We had the whole dot com bust, so I got to see the boom and the bust, which was absolutely fascinating. Mm. And and you you did an MBA at Stanford. So did that did that have a big influence on you? Um. So I, um, just taking one step back, um, I, I grew up in a sort of really untraditional environment. My parents were big hippies and they sort of broke all the rules and uh, we were happy, but we didn't have a lot of money. And I always, I always um, sort of said as a kid that this is not exactly how I want to do it when I'm older. And I really pursued sort of professional and financial security as part of my career path. That's what I was optimizing for and solving for. So 
going to work in banking, going to business school, eventually management consulting, those were all sort of calculated risk-averse steps for me to build um, a, a foundational level of security that, was, that, that I needed. And that's really how I spent my 20s and, and the first part of my 30s, was building up that, um, that real foundation. Um, I obviously learned loads of skills and had some incredible on-the-job experiences and, um, that you know really shaped the way I think about the world and how I think about solving problems. Um, but it's, um, it, I, I really wouldn't say that my career, quote-unquote, really began until I became an entrepreneur about seven years ago. Interesting. And, and what made you switch, I guess, from that safety, I guess, I'm going to call it um, opposite to your parents, perhaps, uh, lifestyle to, to being an entrepreneur? Mm. What, what was the moment that caused that? Um, the answer is that I was able to, and this was really what I might call my big break, um, blessing in disguise, is that I was able to opt for redundancy whilst I was on maternity leave. Um, back in 2012, 13, early 2013. Um, I um, had actually been promoted while involved significantly more travel than the, the role I'd been in before. And that already had involved too much travel. So I was already struggling trying to figure out how I was going to balance newborn and all the travel that I did in my in my job. At that time, I was vice president of international business development for American Express. I managed our bank partner relationships in 11 Northern European markets, and I met a lot of time on the road. Um, and whilst it was, you know, sort of flattering and, you know, to be promoted, it was, um, it was because there was such a change in scope of responsibility, I was able to decline that um, promotion and thereby opt for redundancy. And I'd been at Amex for six years and it's, you know, it's a company that treats its employees well. So I was, I did walk away with a relatively generous package. And I thought to myself, if I can just change how much I spend, I can take, you know, what might have been one year's worth of um, sort of expenses and turn it into three years. And that's what I did is I challenged myself to cut out a lot of extraneous expenses to give myself the breathing space to explore more fully what it is I want to do at that next stage in my career. Because it became really apparent to me once I became a mother that I wasn't going to work and sort of not, you know, I always knew I wanted to work. I didn't want to you know, be a stay-at-home mom not working, but I didn't want to go to work for something I wasn't 100 10,000% convinced was worth not spending that time during the day with my child. So it really just upped the ante and brought it to, you know, very under the spotlight. It was very clear that I needed to find something that um, meant so much to me and I thought was important enough to, to not be looking after my child. Um, so, yeah, so that was a real turning point in my life. Resonates with me, your, your point there. I also had the same experience with my two-and-a-half-year-old. I also stopped working to be with him and then I only started working again because I thought my mission is justifiable enough to, to spend time away from him. And I guess there's also an element of making your, your child proud of you, right? I mean, mm -hmm. Nolan to be proud of what his mummy does, right? Exactly. He's um, certainly my biggest cheerleader. Um, uh -huh. So yeah, I, I often joke, my, my son is my only listener. <laughs> Hopefully that's not true. <laughs> But you mentioned in your bio having a, um, you know, your proud daughter of a hippie entrepreneur. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, so my parents, um, actually, my parents started a company called Frontier um, Natural Products. They started a little cabin on a lake where I was born. Um, and um, for the first sort of maybe 10 to 12 years, it was um, a, fledg a fledging operation. Um, the idea was to... Um, bulk by herbs and spices and um, organic teas and all kinds of natural products and then divvy them up and sell them on. Um, ultimately, um, uh, Frontier grew to hundreds of employees and became the, the largest um, natural products wholesaler in the U.S. Um, but at that time, both my parents, was, they personally separated 
and I um, eventually my dad also my dad sort of grew the company to that point but then he also parted ways he retired really young um, at the age of 48 sort of a big hippie traveling all around the world to this day um, but I grew up very much in entrepreneurial households my my mother started several businesses other businesses I can name at least a dozen businesses I started as a kid um, all, all, you know I used to braid hair for money and I used to, I babysat, cleaned houses. I called them, you know, starting businesses because I had to think about who's my customer, how much am I going to charge and, you know, how am I, how am I going to make some money from this? Um, and so I definitely had the hustle, if you want to call it that, at a young age. Um, my brothers and I, we used to go to the, to the lake on sunny days and take garbage bags and we'd walk around and collect every, everyone's beer, um, Beer cans, because they're worth a nickel each um, all day long. And we would get $100, $120 a day, beer cans, like 20 garbage sacks full. And we used that money to take our annual trip to Adventureland every summer, which was the you know the amusement park a few hours away. So that's just the type of um, environment I grew up in. Um, of course, I always wanted to have, you know, I was jealous of my friends who just, you know, got $20 handed to them every Friday, regardless of whether they earned it or not. Um, but that satisfaction you get from planning something and executing it and then earning the reward is, I know, hugely a part of what makes me who I am today and, and motivates me. And I really love trying to teach that to my son as well. Because um, I think it's a really important quality and that, you know, it's, it's better to learn it earlier in life if you can. Totally, yeah. You mentioned earlier rejecting, I guess, that, that life. Uh, that you had with your parents, what was mm. it that you didn't like about it? There was just significant uncertainty. Um, so whilst we did all that, I also had to go to the food bank with my mom and you know get food stamps and and endure the embarrassment of paying for you know food at the grocery store with with vouchers instead of cash. I think I think I was just you know many children felt left out. I wanted you know. Liz Claiborne handbags and guest jeans and tell you what I didn't get those except for with rare exception so standard material concerns I would say that um, you know 11 year old girl might experience um, and and actually for a long time I you know I loved shopping and acquiring possessions one of the things the first things I did when I was made redundant is I um, is I stopped buying new clothing. So I haven't bought new clothing in seven years, with the exceptions of sportswear and undergarments. Um, everything I've bought, um, including you know winter clothing and everything for my son as well, I buy used. And that really came about understanding the environmental impact of the textile industry, um, which is, um, you know, if you, it's easy to not think about, but once you become aware, um, it's it's hard to ignore. So. I, I, I make quite a few um, sort of changes to my lifestyle that not only are better for the po my pocket, but are better for the planet, um, and also just make me feel better too, So, which have persisted past the point of necessity. I think your story fascinated me when I, when I read about not only what you were doing with Olio, uh, but also your, your history, in many respects, because we're actually quite different. I mean, I had an entrepreneurial uh, upbringing also my parents were both entrepreneurs but they wanted me to be a lawyer and from the age of 10 I can remember them telling me you're going to make a great lawyer Simon and always pushing me to be a lawyer and then through a series of events which I won't go into now um, I left home and school at 15 and started a business uh, much to my mother's uh, unhappiness and she wanted me to be uh, to have the, the life that you talked about that you went and had at the beginning of your yeah. career that, that, that slightly more safe, let's call it, uh, and more prestigious perhaps at the beginning, anyway, uh, life. And so I found your story interesting because it's, it's very the opposite to mine. I find it interesting that you took away that experience of, you know, noticing the difficulty in, in building, let's say your parents were building a business and not having the money to do things meant that you decided to go and you know, work for Morgan Stanley. Did, did you feel when you were working at these companies that you were not in the right place or did it feel right at the time? Um, I think it was a bit of both. Um, 
you know, it was very, you know, when, at the time at which I joined Morgan Stanley, it felt very glamorous. Um, you know, we, we had, a, you know, we had privileges given to 20 and 21 year olds that were just outrageous. You know, we could go to a nightclub to celebrate someone's birthday and expensive $10,000 bar tab. And I'm not saying we did that every day, but I can think of several times that that happened. Um, and we take black, you know, black cars home every night and order fancy food and it, they take us on skiing holidays and we had clients with lots of money who were famous. And so it did feel quite glamorous. And I really, um, coming, you know, where, where I grew up, um, I grew up in rural America. So there was quite a bit of a, you know, small town, big city kind of thing that happened for me. Um, on the other hand, um, throughout my career, I was very obvious that I'm not really a conformist in a lot of ways. And so if I'm put in opportunity or put in situations where conforming is required to be successful, then I will resent that. Um, and I think, I think I navigated that very well um, across the roles that I had, but navigation was involved. And by definition, when there's navigation, then it's not, you're not, you know, there's, there's, there's not necessarily always being your fullest, sincerest, most expressed self, you know, authentic self. So that's just not a nice place to inhabit. Um, whereas today with Olio, I really love that there's not, there's not that navigation. Of course I have, you know, sometimes interviews with journalists or we've got um, pitches to investors or, you know, there are times when you need to really be considerate about um, your approach and what you're saying and who you're saying it to. But for the most part, what I need to do is to really just be myself and talk honestly about what I'm passionate about and the real potential I see that Leo has. No, I don't need, there's no pretending really. It's, it might just be a slightly different nuance. So that's a long answer to your question, which is, um, yeah, there was, there was certainly a bit of both. And there's certainly um, not feeling like that's, um, working in that corporate world. I mean, it's, I learned a lot and I worked with some really talented people, but I also spent a lot of time and energy working on projects or partnerships that just never went anywhere. Um, and, um, and I found that um, frustrating and the pace at which things happen or get decided um, in the corporate world is can be very slow, which def definitely ran counter to my, I like, I like pace and everything. I'm like a high energy, high energy person. Mm. I know what you mean. I can see it in you. <laughs> so tell us what happened. So seven years ago, which your son yeah. is seven years old. So there's some, yeah. there's some fracture in time at this moment, isn't there? Something exciting happening seven years ago. So talk us through, you've, you've done this plan on, on paper about, you know, a year stretching it to three. And, and then what happened? Well, so at that time, I was, as an expat on maternity leave in London, I was experiencing, um, I don't know what you call it. I, I was experiencing a problem, which is I didn't have family. Um, and at that time, I was separated from my now ex-husband. And I felt very alone, and I didn't have a great support system. And I... Really, of course, I had lots of friends, but I struggled to find childcare um, to keep me sane. And I would, ended up going to the gym um, every day and maxing out on that two hours you could get at the crash. Um, and I realized, even I'd work out for a bit, and then I'd just do emails or read a book. And I realized there were so many other parents doing the exact same thing, hanging out at the gym um, so that they could use the crash. So I had this idea for, but of course, when you left your child at the crash at the gym, you couldn't leave the gym. And it was, like I said, a maximum of two hours and wasn't necessarily the best um, sort of childcare um, that you were receiving oh, short term. So I had an idea to create um, a business, which I did, um, called My Crash, which was London's first pay-as-you-go flexible childcare provider. So it provided nursery-level childcare, but on a purely flexible pay-as-you-go basis, right on the high street. And we partnered with all the local businesses um, so that 
you could, for example, you know, go get your hair cut and colored and leave your child for three hours at my crash in, um, in, in, in a joined up kind of way. Um, where I live in Crouchend, was full of creatives, actors, musicians, people with really flexible work schedules. Um, and I knew there was a demand for this. And it was a very short period of time after we opened that we were just absolutely full all the time. Um, and our, my original plan was to open up a series of my crashes on high streets all across London and perhaps across the UK. Um, and that was my first foray into entrepreneurship. Um, I, I founded that with two friends. Um, we took the we took the the crash manager from the Virgin Gym and brought him over as our manager. All the local mothers and fathers already had a relationship with him, so they were they trusted him and they were, um, you know, very willing to to try um, try my crash. Um, and it was an absolutely fantastic experience getting that up and go, up and running. And also. Um, it provided me for five years, or up until reception, with um, with free childcare, which was so integral to then give me the capacity to think bigger and move on to Leo. So, is my crash still around? It is not still around. It, we closed it last year. We had a thought, or it might have been the year before last. Now that I'm thinking about it, um, we had a five-year lease. Um, and we ran it successfully as one might call it a passive income, um, operation. I spent about one day a month on it and, and it was profitable. We got a little bit of income and we got the free childcare. Um, unfortunately what happened is a few months before we were actually, we were in the middle of selling the business to a different, to someone who was taking over for us. Um, but there was an, um, an accident that happened that um, I think one of the questions you sent over had to do with name some bad luck you've had in business. Um, and to no fault of anyone's, there was a, um, a minor accident that happened that ended up um, meaning that we needed to shut for just over a month. And it was so close to the end of the lease and we've just decided to, 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 to shut it down. I'll, I started it with two other women who had kids the same age as I, and our kids were going to school now. It just made sense to, to shut it down. Um, but that was okay. That's not necessarily a failure. Um, it's just not exactly how we envisioned it. It served its purpose, um, most certainly, and it's beloved by the local community. We had 1,200 parents on our books who, um, who really adored our staff and our service. So... It was a really big, important stepping stone. Well, as a, a father, um, I'm a full-time father. So as a father with a two-and-a-half-year-old living in North London, I can tell you that is still needed, uh -huh. what you're talking about there. And so... Um, Where do you live? Yeah. Uh, I, I live in Belsize Park. Okay. All right. So you're not too far away. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's a, it's a needed... Need it is. But I, I, I agree with your statement and for our listeners out there that are entrepreneurs that I, I know a lot of you guys listening have businesses that you're struggling with. I, I kind of think what Sasha's saying there is, is letting a business go sometimes through, you know, it's not the right time for you anymore to keep it going and or maybe it's not exactly right anymore for the market. Whatever reason, um, it, it, it's good to, to stop. It's, it's harder to stop, actually. I found businesses myself that I built yeah. up. It, yeah. It's swallowing that pride and saying it's time for to, for it to close is harder than just plugging away and somehow trying to make it, it work. It, it broke my heart, honestly. I mean, I couldn't walk by. It's still it's still vacant, unfortunately, the property, and it's on my doorstep. Um, and it took me a long time to walk by it without, you know, getting a bit tearful because mm. obviously a lot of blood, sweat, and tears goes into, you know, getting a business up and going and keeping it alive. Um, but at the same time, I just had to work through what, you know, my story of that is and realize that it is, it's still a huge success. I'm still incredibly proud of what we did. We still impacted the lives of, you know, hundreds of children's and parent, children and parents. So, um, yeah, you don't have to turn everything into a unicorn <laughs> for it to be a success. It can, yeah. I, I think, I think you're, you know, I want the listeners to pick up on this actually, because, because a lot of people, listen to that, say the Elon Musk's of this world and talk, you know, how got this business and it's doing so well. I think there's a lot of success stories 
in businesses that have closed. You know, I, I, I was talking about Jamie Oliver's Restaurant 15, for example, yeah. that got caught up in his uh, nightmare with the restaurant business. And a lot of people called it all a failure. But I, I looked at the numbers, like 500 kids he'd helped get through, yeah. um, you know, coming out of our, our ju- juvenile uh, kind of setups and, and getting some training in a kitchen with celebrity chefs and how they've gone on to open up their own restaurants or, 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 or do well in life, you know, thanks to that restaurant's help. So yes, it might have closed okay. financially, that business is a failure, but I think people miss a point that it's not just about it made money or it's still here making money, is it? I completely agree. Um, yeah, and that restaurant, actually, I know that restaurant pretty pretty well and the impact that they've had specifically that that has a huge impact and should certainly not be thought of as a as a failure. Yeah, so I, I think that so let's talk about Olio, which I think is incredibly impressive. I, I was just looking at the the numbers involved. You know, you served four four point two million portions of food in forty nine countries, two million users. At, well, this I don't you know this is what the stats I'm looking at online. So feel free to update me. But two million users actively using it sounds very meaningful. How how did this all come about? Um, so, um, it took about nine minutes, nine months to get the crash up and running and self-managing and profitable. And I could step away and make the decision at that point that I actually didn't want to scale it. Um, it, it is, uh, for a lot of reasons, um, the business model is complicated, um, it's a fixed asset, you know, it's a complicated model. And I realized I really wanted to do something that was going to be much more scalable. And at that time, Tessa, who's one of my closest friends, my co-founder of Olio, and I had previously started a business with her, which I won't go into detail about, um, before the crash even. And we knew we wanted to work together. And we knew we wanted to work on something that would um, impact the environment in a positive way because we're both really passionate about that. I met her at business school. We've always been sort of kindred spirits when it comes to um, thinking about the environment. So we did something that's quite nerdy and she's from BCG and I have my McKinsey training. We stepped back and we did a three month sort of um, state of the union study of all of the potential opportunities we could possibly explore. Um, And we set up a framework for evaluating them and we went out and we spoke with dozens and dozens and dozens of CEOs and entrepreneurs um, and experts, really, in the areas of recycling, waste management, B2B marketplaces. We learned all about plastic and glass. And we really just sort of, we had this hypothesis that we could bring a B2B marketplace at a global level um, to life and that that would um, basically digitalizing these really old school waste stream um, waste streams to the benefit of of everyone and basically make sure that more got recycled at better rates with more transparency etc etc cut a long story short is we weren't we weren't able to identify any opportunity that we were going to be able to execute on um, and, and make happen but and so we came very close to giving up and going back, what we used to say, to go get real jobs. Um, but right at the end of that exploration period, Tessa told me um, about an experience she just had moving house because she was moving back from Switzerland to the UK. And on moving day, she found herself with um, some food, some of which was non-perishable, including organic sweet potatoes and cabbages that could last for like weeks. Um, or longer and the removal men wouldn't let her pack them um, in the boxes and so she thought that was ridiculous she wasn't going to throw them away she also wasn't going to eat them that instant on moving day so she bundled up her two kids went out in the middle of winter in Geneva and tried to find someone to give the food to Um, and she couldn't find anyone and she burst into tears and ended up smuggling the food in her boxes anyway committing some type of crime, most likely. And she, she told me that story, and it's just such a, you know, it's like when you fall in love for the first time and you remember that first moment when you meet someone. But uh, just I, I instantly knew that what she was describing was what it is that we needed to work on because it's such a silly problem. Obviously, there were people nearby who would have loved to have that food, 
Um, and she obviously, you know, she had the thought, like, why is there an app for everything, but not an app for sharing perfectly delicious food? Now, this is just such a pro an easy problem that could be easily overcome. So that's where the genesis of the idea came from. And, you know, it was one of those light bulb moment moments. And we, we named the, we named, um, named the company within an hour um, and set out a plan which said that we had 12 months to get we both put in some of our savings and we gave ourselves 12 months to get enough traction to justify not returning to to the workplace um, and it was basically five months to the day when we launched in the app store after that so that's where the idea came from that was in 2015 um, it was just the two of us um, and it's been a bit of a whirlwind um, ever, ever since. We, yeah, so I'm not sure. There's no, a lot that's happened story. in the last five years. Yeah. So, so, I mean, does everyone know what Olio is? Well, I was going to ask you, what does, what is, what does Olio stand for? Oh, right. Well, um, so yeah, just, I just, just for the listeners, Sorry, just for the listeners, uh, I, I will put all of the links to... Olio and, and, and Sasha's uh, business in, in, in the comments. So you can all click through the link below and, and get to know all about it. But sorry, how, how, how did the name come about? What's, what's the uh, um, premise? I just Googled synonym for hodgepodge. Um, and, and that's what an Olio is. An Olio is a miscellaneous, miscellaneous assortment of things. Um, so you could say, though, that's an Olio of cereals on the breakfast bar, right? It, it just means a variety of things. It also is a type of stew, sort of kitchen sink stew where you can put a bit of anything in it, Mediterranean stew. And um, we really like the O's on either side and that symbolism of earth and circular economy. Um, plus we really didn't want a name that was too functional or you just, you know, too on the nose, like the Food Exchange Network. We, we did want something that sounded a bit aspirational that had the potential to become a verb. And we do, we, we, you know, our users of their own accord, well, we call them oleoers and they talk about oleoing and um, we wanted something that could have to have its own language. And we didn't think that hard about it. If we had, we might've thought, notice that it also means olive oil in Italian and which is a bit confusing in Italy, but at least it's a food. I think when I, when I, when I read about it, what shocked me the most, because I, I didn't realize this, that the food waste issue is the third largest contributor to the climate crisis. I, I didn't quite grasp that until I read yeah. it. Um, yeah, if, if food waste were a country, it would be the third largest contributor after the USA and China. And that's really down to the fact that the food supply system is incredibly long and complex. And food itself accounts for about 25% of global carbon emissions. And at least a third of all food goes to waste. So that means somewhere just under 10% of global carbon emissions are directly related to food that's never eaten. Um, uh, some other mind-boggling stats around food waste include, for example, the fact that 25% of the world's fresh water supply goes to grow food that's never eaten. Um, you know, it's worth $1.3 trillion a year. If you think about it in terms of GDP, it's over 1% of the gross domestic product of the US and the UK. So these are, this is like colossal market inefficiencies. And then you couple that with widespread hunger um, and food insecurity, not just all over the world, but here in the UK as well. Um, we have 8 million people living in food poverty in the UK. Um, you know, right now, I think there's, um, there's just been such a, a lot of people who were what you might call borderline, um, have moved from being, you know, a little bit food insecure to actually being in severe food poverty, struggling to feed their children on a daily basis, skipping meals, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now we're not just to confirm. So we're an app that connects neighbors with each other and also volunteers with all kinds of businesses, um, to redistribute good food and other household items for free in the community to prevent waste, but also to connect people um, and build those social ties. We aren't an app that only redistributes food to people who are in need. In fact, that's actually a bit the opposite of what it is that we stand for. 
we think that the scale of food waste is so big that by definition, everyone needs to get involved. And we also, um, our mission is 100% environmental. Um, we're quietly very proud of the impact we're having on people who live in vulnerable, who are in vulnerable situations. But the number one piece of feedback we get from those individuals is they like Olio because it doesn't feel like a handout and they can participate in an anonymous and stigma-free way where they're not, you know, stigmatized as someone who can't afford to collect their own food. So we have people from all walks of life who've used Olio and that's one of the things that makes it super special. Um, it really is, um, like, like if you've ever used it, you have no idea who's going to show up on your doorstep. Um, and I mean that in the nicest possible way, um, whether it's, you know, someone with a briefcase or, you know, it's someone who's actually cycled halfway across London to get your bananas. Like it's the whole, the whole mix. Um, it's really, really fun. And how does the business model side of it work? How, how, how do you fund this business? Um, so we're um, a venture capital backed company. Um, we're, you know, we're not a nonprofit. We are a for-profit limited company. We are a social enterprise. We have a social mission, but we have raised four rounds of financing, three of which have been funded by Excel, which if anyone is aware, you know, is a very traditional Silicon Valley VC, um, you know, and we've um, Octopus also led one of our third round. We also have quite a few impact investors from all over Europe who are you know, looking equally at our social and environmental outcomes as our commercial outcomes. Um, and our revenue model consists of, well, there's obvious, there's quite a few different revenue streams in different stages at which they come to life. The one that we're right now um, that we've been, I guess, we've been revenue generating for the last 18 months, and that's our Food Waste Heroes program. That's Olio for Business. So we recruit, food safety train, and manage about 8,000 Food Waste Hero volunteers who collect food that is um, perfectly edible, but can't be collected by charities and can't be sold tomorrow from thousands of businesses every week who pay us to help them achieve their goals of having zero edible stores. We work with everyone from, we work with um, over a hundred Pret-a-Mangers. We work with about 300 Tesco's and we're scaling with them. Selfridges, Planet Organic. We work with Compass and the large caterers. And we've just hired my first head of sales in December um, and built up a team around him. And that's a real focus area for the next sort of 12 to 18 months. Um, COVID-19 has not helped, but actually it hasn't hindered because we have found that warehouses and depots and offices and caterers and universities, businesses who um, have found themselves because they've shut with insanely large quantities of bulk food going to waste with short shelf life. And we've rescued hundreds of tons of that food on an ad hoc basis um, with those with those businesses, um, mostly for free or for a small charge, but just it's we've developed the relationship and we've gotten the opportunity to give them a free trial and for them to see the magic of how quickly our volunteer network works. Um, the volunteers take that food home so if it's a big collection, you might send 10 or 20 volunteers. Um, and we've built a lot of proprietary systems to basically intelligently recruit volunteers who have certain skills or do or do not have a car and are this or this not far away from a business that is donating and based on their preferences for the days and times in which they're able to volunteer. So we have built a matchmaking system um, which means that we can recruit very quickly and, and effectively. The volunteer will come, take as much as they can, and then they take it home, they store it safely, they add it to the app, and then their neighbors come along and pick up the food. So it's all still a neighbor-to-neighbor -neighbor exchange. Um, you know, individual neighbors, no one's going to a business and picking up, you know, picking up food, and it's all still for free. Um, but to cut a long story short, if that's not clear, that Olio for Business solution 
is, is how we're generating revenue now. Um, when we have a larger, and as you, can, as you can imagine, I'm sure, we're by bringing in literally millions of dollars or pounds, excuse me, of free food into the app and sharing it for free, we're providing enormous value to people. Um, and um, at some point we will need to, to monetize that. Um, I think Olio will always be free. Um, the goal is not to um, have people pay for food. That would uh, actually go against sort of everything that we stand for and the, you know, our, our focus on impact, et cetera. But I can imagine that we will have a premium version of the app where super requesters um, are paying for um, premium features like special notifications from special food waste heroes or and we have people who are right now one of our biggest challenges is that demand so far outstrips supply um, which is ironic given the scale of food waste um, and we have to put in place particular features to throttle really the demand so that um, the super requesters aren't any up and that actually there's more of a fair distribution of food amongst the user base. Anyway, so we're also launching a bit of an, uh, there's a huge B2B marketing and affiliate revenue opportunity, which we've just started um, exploring and um, that is coming as well. I love your story and I, I, I have a, a lot of extra questions. I'm not sure I'm going to have time on this podcast to get into all of them, but um, I think there's a lot of listeners out there that want to build a business with purpose. And I, I, I speak to a lot of them. I do a, a live every day and a lot of people want to build purposeful businesses. You've done it. I'm absolutely amazing. I think a purpose driven business that's a profit making enterprise is something I, uh, I recommend to people. And I, and I, I just wonder, I mean, that, that is quite a hard mix to get right though, isn't it? So you, if you have investors, they have an agenda, of course, quite rightly to make money for their shareholders and for their yeah. fund, which is fair and normal. But I guess sometimes, you know, it, it's just getting that balance. But for listeners out there that want to start a purposeful business but, and love the idea, frankly, of getting capital to help them do it so they're not mm. an NGO permanently with their hand out asking for money, is there anything, you know, any recommendations about how you went about that? That, that is a hard line to walk, right? Yes, um, and it definitely, it was certainly times when traditional investors have said, wait, you're not a charity, and, and impact investors or, or, or grant organizations have said, oh my gosh, you know, we don't, we don't trust you, you've got ulterior motives. Um, so my, but my recommendation would be to choose a business model that is in lockstep with the social outcome you're optimizing for. So for us, by definition, the more food that's rescued and redistributed through the platform, the greater the value of Olio, and the greater the value of Olio, the more likely it is that there's something to monetize. So, so those are in, sort of inherently in lockstep. The other thing is the problem that we're trying to solve is massive. So the TAM, total available market, is really big. So I mentioned earlier $1.3 trillion. Well, over half of all food waste takes place in the homes. And no one's addressing that. So there's a, the size of the prize is really big. That even if we can just get a bit a sliver of it, um, you know, we can build out. Try and choose an area where the size of the prize is really big. I guess would be my advice. If it's too niche, um, then I think it can be really difficult to get the interest of traditional investors who might have a bit of a thing with Olio. Is it's a it's, and and I, one of our investors actually said this, but, you know, so it's a bit, either we're going to get to a billion users by the end of the decade, which is our stated ambition, and we're dreaming really big, and we have a plan to get there. Um, and in that case, it will be a very, very, very valuable investment for those that took a risk on us early on. Um, um, but, the, but the fact that that's even a possibility is attractive to investors who are thinking about, a portfolio about their portfolio as a whole as opposed to each investment individually so if you can find if you have that potential then I think that can help the other thing is that we've been very upfront with our investors and we've asked for patient capital so we're not looking at the, at the typical three to five year type of exit returns you might be imagining you know, we are a seven plus 
right? Um, like, so we're looking specific for patient capital. And then finally, I should have perhaps said this first because um, I do think this was really important, is we developed what we call a litmus test. Um, and if we were pitching to Esther, and within the first sort of 10 minutes, they didn't share a personal story about why they absolutely can't stand food waste, then we knew that we were probably lost. Um, because it is an emotional it is an emotional topic and maybe it's because of how they were raised or where they were raised or where they were worked. But if someone has already experienced and had a story to tell about how that time when they were a teenager and they worked at the bakery and they, they couldn't see all the cakes being thrown away. So they took them and they, you know, and they, and they emotionally invested it, um, in the, in the, in the problem we're trying to solve, then, um, it was a lot easier, um, to bring them on, on, on the journey and convince, convince them. Also, fundraising is a full-time job. So um, in between rounds, you know, my, my co-founder who leads on investor liaisons, I mean, she spends a good 50% of her time fundraising on average all year round for the last five years. So I think, some, I think that a lot of entrepreneurs underestimate the, and maybe that's just us, maybe that's because we're a complicated story, but we couldn't have done any less. Another fantastic advantage though, I think the other thing is, don't think about it just in terms of the negatives. There are some really big advantages to having a purpose-driven business. So we're able to rely on volunteers. Now we're very straightforward about our, you know, the, the fact that we will be profitable and that we do have investors and how we're funded. But because our mission is so strong, people will work for us because they believe in what we're doing. They want us to be successful. We're also able to acquire talent. I mean, people. I don't know, maybe it's a generational thing, but so many people out there who just really, even when they're 25, like when I was 25, I, I didn't have as, um, you know, I wasn't thinking about my impact on the world or the climate crisis, but there's a whole generation of people out there who don't want to wait until it's too late to work on something that is gonna make a difference positively. Um, so there's lots of advantages that I think um, come with being a, a purpose-driven benefit or uh, purpose-driven business. Yeah, no, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned, you know, when you were 25, I, I feel like I was the same. I, I basically just wanted to make ends meet. You know, I just wanted to be able to pay the bills. If I could get to zero every month, I was happy. I, I wasn't thinking about the environment. I wasn't thinking about, you know, frankly, I wasn't even thinking about how to, you know, <laughs> How to, how to pay people more. I was just thinking about how to pay people less. You know, I was thinking about how to survive. So I do think the next generation is different. Maybe it's more access to information and maybe it's, it's, it's more awareness or maybe the problem is getting closer. Uh, but I, I, I agree that I, I, you know, there is a, a whole slew of people out there that, that will help a purpose-driven business, even if it's for profit, because it, 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 make, it brings meaning to the day. And so yeah. I noticed you, you yeah. know, looking at your numbers, you have 50,000 volunteers. It did cross my mind. There, you know, there is an element of like, if you're a volunteer for a for-profit business, mm -hmm. there, you know, there, there is some conflict. But I think over time, there's also a community opportunity there that you, I'm sure you can build an equity pool for the people that have contributed to support it. Yes. I'm sure there's, there's all sorts of opportunities to further elongate the mission um, that isn't just about, you know, about making money. I like the point about patient capital as well. I think a lot of people will take money from whoever will give it to them <laughs> and, and, and yeah. you know, interviewing the people that, and I can say this as an investor myself, I would yeah. tell people before taking you know, any money from me, you know, get to know me, you know, like what, what's, what, am I in this to make a quick buck? Am I, you know, you know what's, the, what's the reason I'm involved? And I think if you can attach an investor's emotional um, experiences to your purpose in your business, it's incredibly powerful. And yeah. so it's a good bit of advice for our listeners out there that, you know, want to start a purposeful business and want to raise money. Um, and I, I, I also agree with you about the timeline. I think people do underestimate that generally. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm personally, you know, with my podcast series, I've had people off to invest and part of me thinks, you know, just take it. But I know as soon as I'm on that road, it's a never ending um, machine you need to feed in some respect because then the numbers are there. They want to see the numbers the following year when the next round comes, you know, so yeah. pressure's both, both sides, which can be a good thing. You know, pressure, pressure can be a good thing. Now, I, I, I feel like I could talk to you forever. 
So I, 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 I'm sadly, yeah. I, I have to at some point uh, bring the podcast to an end. Our, our listeners only normally have an hour, I guess, that uh, they give us an hour of their time so kindly to listen to to to, to these stories. And, but I, I guess I, I wanted to you know, bring it too close. How do you, how do you, how do you teach your son now these things? Bearing in mind you were in an entrepreneurial family, you know, and you had mm-hmm. that po- positive negative experience, and now your son's seeing you and what you're doing. How, how do you how do you teach him about you know what he should do next, and how do you view education? And would you like him to go work for let's not name a name, but a big brand, or how, how do you position it as a parent now? Well, that's a good question. Um, he's been Nolan has been very hands on with Oleo since he's been able to walk. If I'm honest, since we started, so I have countless. Um, I mean, I don't want to call it child labor, but you know, when we first started, <laughs> before we, volunteers. Yeah, exactly. First volunteer. You know, when we um, before, when we came up with the idea, we had five months until we launched, and uh, we delivered ten thousand letters to our neighbors in North London by hand. Um, not to mention how many times flyers we stood out on the street corner handed out. And I, he got really involved in putting letters and flyers through letterboxes, for example, laminating posters that we hung up on, um, you know, we plastered all of the, the high streets um, where we were launching with posters. And um, so he's really, been, I just integrate him in a lot of my work. Like I turn, I'm not a huge, like sit down and play Lego kind of person. But if you want to come and get integrated and turn work into a fun activity, that's what I do. That's how I parent. He loves it. He loves being involved. Um, one of the things, um, would I care Would I care if he went and got, wanted to go work for a big brand? Of course not. Um, absolutely not. Um, you know, I think children need to find their own way and that my job is to support him in making the choices he makes, whether I agree with them or not. Um, obviously, there are exceptions to this um, if we're talking about sort of anti-behavior or something like that. But um, yeah, I always think that uh, my job is to take care of myself, to teach Nolan how to take care of himself, and to not stop other people from taking care of themselves. And it's easy to think that my job is to take care of everyone. It's not. Um, and that's a little bit of a mantra that I've been working with um, working with recently, or not recently, but for the last few years, which does a, is a good guide. So I'm pretty, um, I, I just like to integrate. I don't have a strict division between work and life. That's just or work and quote unquote life. Um, I sort of integrate everything in a way that hopefully is balanced enough um, that every uh, that it means no one gets to see what I'm working on, but also participate in it as opposed to feeling excluded. So many insights and knowledge um, from you today that I personally resonate, and I think our listeners will appreciate. I I also um, totally believe there's no such thing as work-life balance it's, it's just life and and yeah uh, and i think i think integration with your child into the business a lot of people say i can't start a business because i've got i've got children and i'm like well you know make them part of it and, and, yeah. and do something that they'd be proud to be a part of um, and, yeah. and so you know your 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 words are so right on and your your experience um is, is fantastic I, I just want to end. I mean, I, I'm just interested. This is kind of a funny question to ask, uh, just, just lighthearted, really. But if, you, if you're a book, you, you know, you've written a book, what chapter are you on and what title uh, do you think you're on in your chapter? Oh, goodness. Yeah, you did, you did mention that. I, I thought about that. Um, I, I couldn't remember how old I was. I was like, <laughs> am, I, am I 44? I was, I, was, I was really excited to realize I was him actually 43 and not 44. Oh. Um, so I don't know if there are 100 chapters or how many, um, what, what number I'm on. I, I think for me, I am coming. Oh, I remember what I was going to say. I think the chapter of my book is Essentialism. Um, and there's a good book I read recently called Essentialism, The Disciplined Art of Saying No. And I can feel myself having migrating from a saying yes to everything 
period in my life, especially at the early stage of a new business. Like you feel like you couldn't possibly say no to anything in case that's the one thing that's going to make everything, you know, and, 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 and I, I don't want to say that I burnt out at all. Um, but for a variety of personal reasons and also just the stage that Olio is at now, you know, we're basically with 30 employees, you know, we're at a different stage of maturity and I need to, I'm going to try and put some of the practices preached in the book that I just referenced, Essentialism, more and more into practice and turn them into um, a more restrained, perhaps, way of approaching opportunity um, in this in this next chapter of my life. So the chapter would be called Essentialism or the Pursuit of Essentialism. Chapter 44. Yes. 43. 43, 43 and a half. Yeah. <laughs> 43 and a <laughs> Uh, well, thank you so much. I, I'm going to quickly sum up what I've what I've taken away from today. Um, I first of all want to say thank you for not saying no to me and and coming coming on this show because <laughs> I completely agree with the essentialism, which I'll put a link to that book in mm. in the uh, podcast um, description too. I, I I agree that saying no is so hard, and I'm just grateful that I wasn't one of your no's. So thank mm. you for coming on the show and, and sharing uh, your insights around this. I love podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. But for example, I was recently asked to go speak, and they were you know they were paying me. There was a speaker fee, and I came so close to saying yes. I actually did say yes, and then as soon as I realized that I shouldn't have said yes, I said no. But you know, it's not how I, you know, I don't need to take two days out to go to Bulgaria, et cetera. So I'm trying to get that balance right between yeah. saying yes and saying no. Not easy. And I think, you know, it's, it's good, good that you're, you're thinking about it. And I think, you know, if someone was offered a two day trip to Bulgaria to do, go and speak, uh, they'd take it up. So it's good discipline to say no, but it's not easy. So good, good bit of advice for people to, to remember that. I, I also like, um, kind of beginning where you talked a little bit about, you know, planning for a day where you, you know, you're not wishing for, for longing for something else in that day. I think a lot of people do do that. A lot of people, um, they're doing something every day, but they're longing for something else, even if they're not sure what it is and they're stuck in what they're doing. And I think not, not living that way is, is really important. I like be your authentic self. Mm -hmm. I totally, um, agree with you and, and like it. I think that, uh, not everything has to be a unicorn. Is also a good statement you've made in this interview. I, I like that point. I think so many people have got caught up in billion dollar valuations as if it matters. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It, it does and it doesn't. Yeah. Like you said as well, you know, it's good to have the ability to have a billion users because that gets people on board to support your mission. But, you know, the value of the business, that doesn't, that's a byproduct of doing something meaningful. So, so too many people focus on the unicorn bit and not enough on the purpose bit. I, uh, I, I guess, you know, choose an area where um, the issue is big is good advice for people. I think a lot of people try to do that. There is a piece of me that also wants to tell people just to focus on something that's big for you. That's meaningful to you. Mm. And I think, you know, take, taking away, you know, taking away the size, the size piece that in, in a sense, the business has to be big. It just has to be big and meaningful for you. But if you want to get people on board, like investors, then you, you have to have an issue that's going to excite them that, you know, make a meaningful difference to a big problem. That, that said, I, that said, I strongly feel like you shouldn't try and tackle that really big problem all at once. You should find the smallest sliver of it that you can do in like the narrowest possible solution scope, you know, the scope that is, doesn't feel overwhelming. You can see a path to execution, even if that's really small and it's just one tiny vertical of a massive, of a massive opportunity, I guess. Yes. Um, there, I, if, I, if you pick something too big, you never get started, and that's can be really overwhelming. So true, so true. I think that is one of the problems with a lot of people who have passion and care about a problem. I actually interviewed someone this morning who basically wants to solve the climate issue, and it's just such a big problem that they get to a point where they just can't, you know, they can't do it. It's just too big a problem. So, to your, your advice is right. I think sometimes just break. I have the same, I have a mission to help 10% of the unemployed in the world start a business of their own, but I'm going to start by just helping people that have started their business on their own, get some insights and knowledge, you know, one step at a time, right? So, yep. to totally, totally, totally true. Well, look, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for saying yes to us. Thank you so much for what you're doing. I'm a big fan of, of your app. I will uh, be proud to promote this podcast, your insights and what you're doing. And thank you again for your time. 
Absolute pleasure. Make sure to send me all of the show notes so we can promote it as well. So Wonderful. good luck with the, the rest of lockdown and see you on the other yes, side. Likewise. Yes, right. well, we're, na- we're neighbors. So now, now I know <laughs> we're neighbors. Once this is all over, hopefully we'll be able to, uh, you know, go and have a coffee somewhere and, and yes. chat. But if I can ever help you in any Maybe. way, just, just let me know. Well, the number one thing I always ask people to do is just to simply use the app to share things. Um, you never know what um, what your neighbor will appreciate. So that's hopefully that's that's, an, that's an easy one. All right. Thank All you. Right. Bye, Simon. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Good Luck Club podcast. We know you have thousands of podcasts you could be listening to, and you've chosen us. We of course feel lucky. If you want to hear more, please go to thegoodluckpod.com or go to any of our social media pages and share with us your views, your insights and any way that we can improve what we're doing to make it a better experience for you. We wish you the best of luck.